April 16th, 2013. We're driving along near the Nigerian border with Benin, along a rough road through scrubby brush, when we come upon a police checkpoint. These are common, but on this occasion they ask for my passport and they look at it, and instead of waving us through, the head officer, who's wearing a white polo shirt, is kind of a portly fellow with a very big shiny chrome uh, handgun on his hip, says, oh, there's a problem. And basically, as we explain the visa to him, and he says that because the stamp in my passport is for a business visa, but I'm a volunteer, he's saying that, that that's, that's not valid, which is not correct. But when you're in the hinterland of Nigeria, what the guy with the gun thinks might be more important than what is legally true. So he asks us to come, get out of the car and come back to the checkpoint, and so John and I do. Uh, John is the representative of the organization I'm there with. He's a local Nigerian around my age. So we go back to the checkpoint, where there's several other soldiers in their olive camo uniforms holding Kalishnikovs, kind of smirking at us. And John starts getting into the face of the guy in the polo shirt, kind of shouting at him, saying, I'm not trying to tell you how to do your job, but you know this is wrong, and you know this visa is valid. And I'm sitting there like, oh, this, this doesn't look like it's going very well at all. So hi, welcome back to Nigeria. This is episode four about Nigeria. I know last time I said I was done, but I thought of several more anecdotes. And as it happens, these all kind of pertain to the second project, which I guess I didn't really talk about before. The second project, we went to Nasarawa State, which is just a few hours east of the capital of Abuja. So we just drove there from the capital. Just in this case, it was me and Blessing, the organization's driver. So we're going to divide this into three acts. We're going to be slightly more organized than we were before. And as well, there's an important travel secret hidden in the third act. So if you listen along, you'll, you'll hear this travel secret, which might revolutionize your travels. So one more bonus Nigeria episode, and then we should be done with Nigeria after this. So act one, the village of Ogbagi. So rows of yam mounds and mud-walled little houses fly past us as we speed along the narrow dirt trail. We had begun at an abandoned train station, Ten years earlier, Nigeria had had running trains, but they've fallen into complete disrepair. Uh, the truckers apparently strongly oppose any effort to revitalize the trains, so the trains do not run. One of many ways it sometimes feels like Nigeria is going backwards. They used to have oil refineries, which also no longer work. But so we're on a little convoy of four motorbikes. Each one has got a driver and a passenger. And we're occasionally slowing to go around these skinny white cows with their huge horns. And the farmers look up from where they're maintaining their red-brown yam mounds and wave at us as we go past. Women in brightly colored dresses with loads upon their head, bound for market, stand aside in dappled shade as we pass and give us friendly smiles. If Nigeria could be boiled down to an abstract general impression, I think this would be it, kind of the rows and rows of yam mounds and the red dirt and the verdant green trees and just these bright smiles under these astonishingly large loads people carry on their heads. This is Nigeria. 
So after about 20 minutes going through this farmland, the land around us kind of starts to rise up into mountainous hills, and the yam fields give way to rocks and scraggly trees. Up and up we go, at times having to get off the motorbike and actually walk up a particularly steep or treacherous parts of the trail, and then get back on again. After about two hours of this, we finally reached our destination, the remote village of Ogbagi. So this was only first reached by motorbike the previous October. And so this is April, so it's less than six months since motorbikes were able to reach this place. The only other vehicles to ever get here were in 1956, I'm told, some uh, Land Rovers somehow got up there. But so this village is up in this kind of mountainous terrain. And even here, it's small rectangular houses with corrugated metal roofs. So I'm still, I've been looking for, for huts all along. I've always had this kind of romanticized vision of huts. I'm hoping to find some huts. Now, even here in a very, very remote place, they do not have huts. Apparently, and of course, so they, to get corrugated metal roofs up here, they had to have carried them by hand, probably on their head. So that would be quite, quite the journey with this large, unwieldy object. So we gather all the village's beekeepers who are, as is typical, just kind of not dedicated beekeepers, but all the subsistence farmers who are also interested in beekeeping. We gather them all under a very large mango tree. Most of them have a few traditional hives, like hollowed out logs typically, high up in trees. And as well, they practice honey hunting. So we'll go actually find wild hives in trees and rob the honey. So no, no more modern hives have really reached this place. So I spent two hours explaining the benefits of making top bar hives and the removable frames and kind of more manageable beekeeping. And I showed them pictures of various things on my laptop, which they were really, really fascinated by. As you can imagine, they don't get very many laptops up here. So I was able to show them pictures of various bee-related things on my laptop and answer questions about bee biology and behavior. And then, then it's time to open a hive. In this case, because I'm the only one with protective gear, so no one can even look over my shoulder, and so it's not really so much to teach them anything, so much as in a case like this, they only open hives at night, and so my goal here is to demonstrate that it is possible to open a hive during the day, which was just bizarre to them. As I was pulling on my, my beekeeping coveralls, I'm pretty sure one of the young men was laughing at me. <laughs> But so they show me where this beehive is just outside the village, which is actually finally it's in a hut. It's in a little they actually do build huts for typically granary and storage purposes. And so there's this little very, very cute, small hut shaped granary that's got a beehive in it. And they hand me I didn't bring my smoker here. So they hand me a smoking bundle of reeds that are kind of bundled up as a smoker. But I get to the little hut full of bees and like it's, it's very small it's the size of it's bigger than a normal beehive but it's got a little door on it that you open to access the bees inside but without a smoker i can't blow the smoke in so i kind of try unsuccessfully to waft it at it and then i just have to open that door and so the bees have not been smoked at this point so they come out quite angrily and there's not removable frames so i kind of like peer in there and stuff but the honeycomb is not capped the honey is not completely finished and i think someone kind of came up close enough to shout at me and says why aren't you removing the honey must have been th through blessing because none of them could speak english so somehow someone conveyed this to me which i'm just like i had just 
explain to them, among other things, that they should only harvest capped honey. But often, even after I explain it to people, they, they don't take it to heart. This is one of the many little, little details, is honey is not complete until the bees have capped over the honeycomb, uh, sealed it in. Until then, the water content is usually too high, and it can ferment, and it will be too watery. And so, so that was a thing. So I inspect it, and then I close it up. And then I kind of just walk away from it, and I'm kind of walking in broad circles to, to you know, in a nearby meadow to lose the bees. And then Blessing comes in shouting distance again and tells me to light the brush at my feet on fire to, to get the bees to go away. And I'm just like, no, this is this is also a very bad idea. This is just an example of the kind of weird extreme solutions they think of to a problem that's not even a problem. I'm like, I'm just gonna walk in big bud circles until these bees go home and it's not a fiasco. So this kind of, you know, I'm not sure my visit to this village would have changed what they did drastically, but it would have kind of given them some ideas and some inspiration that there are other ways. The way they're doing it is not necessarily the only way. Act two, blessing. So on this second project, I was assisted, as I said, by the organization's driver, Blessing. I feel like considering I'm pretty sure his job description is just driver, but clearly they, they have a lot of faith in him and he was really stepping beyond his, his role on this project because he had to coordinate with all the... On this project, we visited a whole bunch of different organizations. Instead of working with one organization the whole time, it was kind of like every day or two we were off to a new place in the area. And Blessing did all that coordinating and did a lot of translation as well. Sometimes he was standing in as the translator. And really funny was because he's been the translator or assistant on beekeeping projects before. He is not a beekeeper, but sometimes he'd be answering questions that he knew the answer of without even translating to me because he's just like, oh, I know this. <laughs> and, you know, he was mostly right, but still I was always like, tell me what you're saying so I can, you know, be sure that you're telling them the right thing. But that was, that was kind of fun that he was able to uh, get so involved. Two funny things about his accent, and I don't know if it was because his accent was stronger than other people's or just that I was around him a lot, but uh, two, two of my, my funniest accent stories pertain to him. On one of the days, as we're getting ready to go, he says, oh, we need to leave early. We need to go get foil. And I'm like, foil? And he's like, yes, we need foil. And I'm like thinking, are we, are we engaged in some baked goods project? Are we, are we keeping something, you know, warm? And so I'm looking at him like, I'm like, what do you, what do you want about? And he's like, because we drove so much yesterday, we need more foil. And that's when it dawned on me. I'm like, oh, foil is fuel. All right, all right, that makes sense, I guess. And then another time, even more amusing, one day he asked me if I drank the pig milk that had been in the hotel fridge that had been provided to me. And I'm like, pig milk? I know I didn't, but I would have tried it if I knew it was pig milk. And he looks at me and he's like, yeah, it's pig milk. It says right on the label. And I says, oh, I, I didn't even realize you could milk a pig. Like... <laughs> And he looks at me like, like, what? And he's like, no, not pig milk, pig milk, pig milk. And I'm like, yes, that's what you said. Like, now I'm looking at him like he's insane. And then he finds a discarded package from the uh, trash or whatever and shows it to me. And it says peak milk, P-E-A-K. But with his accent, 
peak and pig sounded indistinguishable to me and lacking enough context to figure it out. It was just like, pig milk. I mean, I guess you could milk a pig. I've never heard of anyone doing that, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Act three, Anthony. So this project in Nasarawa, this was the one I did mention earlier that I was delayed returning to the capital by a day because a bomb had gone off the day I was supposed to return. So, so we, we hung out in Nasarawa for one more day. As well, on my arrival to Nigeria to begin this project, John, who was mentioned at the cliffhanger in the beginning of this episode, he had actually been held up at gunpoint in a hotel the day before I arrived. So he was in a hotel and these armed people came into the hotel and just went room to room, relieving everyone of their valuables. And so things like that are happening around me and it's pretty scary. So in Nasarawa, my hotel had guards with Kalishnikov rifles at the, the front door, at the entryway. And I didn't really wander around Lafia town, I think was the town I was in in Nasawa. And then returning to Abuja when we finally did, the hotel they always put us in in Abuja, it has not only security at the front entrance at the where people drive in, but at the landing of every floor, there was a guard posted. And the guards posted on the floor landings, they were on duty for eight hours at a time. They couldn't sit down. I don't, there was no conceivable reason to me why they couldn't sit down other than the perception of being alert. But so they just had to stand there on the stair landing for eight hours at a time. You know, for the night shift, that's eight hours of night standing on a stair landing. And every time I'd go up to my room in the evening, I'd pass Anthony, the security guard on my floor, and he'd be sitting, he wouldn't be sitting, he'd be standing there looking bored out of his mind. And so I'd always stop and chat with them. And sometimes, I don't know, more than half an hour, maybe an hour would go by. I didn't really have anything else urgent to do. And I just felt bad that he seemed really bored. So I'd chat with him every time I was there. And I think he really appreciated that. This kind of gets to my, my, my secret I mentioned which is so many tourists or business people, people using hotels, they treat the porters and doormen and security like their furniture, as well as elsewhere in life, you know, grocery store cashiers and all that. But I find my secret to having a really enjoyable travel experience is learn the name of the doorman or the porter, or especially the, the front desk people are easy, the security, anyone you pass every day, Stop, say hey, find out what their name is, find out if they have a family, what their kids' names are. I have found if you go in and it's bouncing around a bit, but much later when I was in Tanzania, uh, that hotel had a doorman whose job was just to hold the door open every day and was always the same guy. And I asked him how his kids were every day. And just the way these people's face just lights up when you're not treating them like furniture, but you're taking an interest in their life. And then that makes your life so much better because then every time I travel from outside through the lobby up into my room I'm passing three or four people whose faces light up when they see me and that certainly makes travel much more enjoyable so this is my secret I strongly encourage you to do is learn, learn the names of, of all these people and it's hard for me actually because I'm actually terrible with names but uh, I, I definitely 
I've learned to make an effort at this because it's, it's, it's worth it. But anyway, so Anthony, so on my last day in country, they always schedule a completely empty day for me to write my uh, end of project report, which takes me half an hour, so it's basically a day off. And it happened to be that the night before, Anthony had said, hey, I'm off tomorrow. Do you want to come to my home village? And I was like, yes. Even though, as I just mentioned, there was all this instability around, but I don't know, sometimes I'm reckless. <laughs> so, so the next day I was off, he was off. He had the overnight shift, so he was working till 8 a.m. And when he got off, we went and got a taxi together. Normally he would take the bus, but the taxi was 10 bucks, so I could afford it pretty easy. And so we went, he was just outside of Abuja, the capital. There's this giant giant monolith like one solid rock that stands 300 meters tall looming over Abuja so 300 meters for the Americans that's like three football fields tall it's it's pretty tall <laughs> and so we went to the base of that and kind of marveled at it from its base and went to, around his, his little village and ate, ate some fresh mangoes from a tree uh, one one particularly memorable thing about that is I've been curious about palm wine all along I'm kind of also a brewing enthusiast and all that. So I've been very curious about this. And so he showed me how they like, someone climbs up the tree and cuts a hole in the, the crown, the kind of bulb part on the top of a palm. And I think they insert a tube or maybe they just let the sap drip out and collect it into a container. And fact checking myself just now, it says on Wikipedia that it is not fermented when it comes out, but it ferments within the next few hours. I find it kind of hard to believe that it would not ferment until it came out and then it would ferment that quickly. I feel like if it's prone to ferment that quickly, it would probably ferment within the crown of the tree. But so me and Wikipedia are, are at a somewhat of a disagreement here. I would normally say Wikipedia is probably right, but this feels like the kind of thing that maybe no one's bothered to really carefully check. So someone needs to go to to anywhere in the tropics and and double check whether whether palm wine is alcoholic when it comes out of the tree. Either way, it's it's a bit gnarly. It tastes a bit, you know, as they say, like rocket fuel. A lot of people assume that anything that tastes gnarly like that must be a, a liquor like whiskey or vodka, a little informally call it moonshine, uh, but that only pertains to distilled beverages. Without distillation, you can't actually get to that high of a level of alcohol. And so in this case, it just tastes gnarly because it's something that fermented in a, uh, in a tree. And it's, it's only 4% alcohol by volume, so it's, it's not actually any stronger than your average beer. So, so that, was, that was palm wine. So then that was that. Returned back to the hotel without getting bombed or killed by terrorists. One more thing, actually at the base of Mount Zuma, there is a hotel that was built there for, I don't know, millions, but it's been sitting vacant ever since it was built because too many of the locals believe that Zuma Rock was a sacred rock and building a hotel there, it is now cursed by the local spirits. And so no one would work there and no locals would stay there. So this very big hotel near the base of Zuma Rock is just never never been occupied ever since it was completed. So then I return to Abuja, to the capital and the hotel. 
And on the very, very last day, a new volunteer is arriving from the United States to start a different project. And so as I'm walking with him through the lobby or the landing in the hotel, I'm like, oh, and this is Anthony. And this new volunteer looks at me like as if I just introduced him to a cupboard. You know, I just introduced him to the security guard who's standing there like like he was important. And I'm sure this this new volunteer seemed like a nice guy, but he still was just kind of like, why, why, why? He didn't seem to see why I was introducing him to a piece of furniture. <laughs> so not everybody gets it. And to finish the cliffhanger from the beginning, you may remember I left you with John shouting in the, in the officer's face. And much to my surprise, the officer actually then backed down. Like, I feel like in the United States, if you get into a police officer's face, you're going to end up with a, I don't know, disturbing the peace or unruly conduct or... I'm not sure what they term it, but I think you're going to end up in handcuffs if you just get into an officer's face in the United States. But not apparently in Nigeria. In Nigeria, this this officer, when John got in his face, he was like, well, well, do you, do you swear this visa is correct? And John's like, of course I do. And so the guy's like, all right, well, you can go. And so we went on our way. And so that was surprising and really, really, really interesting to me that the dynamic is, is so different there about the way that police might respond to one getting in their face. So that was interesting. So that is the end. That should be the end about Nigeria. I think my next episode will be about Ethiopia. I'm very pleased I have this one in time to finally have an update on the first of next month, or the first of this month as you're hearing it now. And so hopefully, hopefully we'll stay on schedule now and we'll have Ethiopia on the 1st of September. Thanks for listening.